Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments in our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into episode three, Death and Scandal in Bombay. In the spring of 1959, a handsome naval commander named Kawas Nanavati marched into the Bombay apartment of businessman Premahuja, pulled out a revolver and shot him three times. Dead. The murder sent shockwaves throughout India, turning the killer into a hero, the victim into a villain and the justice system on its head. The story of the confrontation began with a confession. During lunch on the 27th of April 1959, Nanavati's English-born wife, Sylvia, admitted to her husband that while he'd been away at sea, she had embarked on an affair with a businessman named Premahuja. Within a day, Ahuja would be dead. I speak to Dr Sunny Singh about the incident and its wider ramifications. Dr. Sunny Singh, thank you ever so much for joining me. Today we're looking at a case that happened in India in 1959 involving, well, I guess a, a crime of passion would be a generous way to describe it. But I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the situation in India at this time. We're obviously a decade or so after partition. What's Indian society like? Okay, so um, 1959 is 12 years after Indian independence. I think when we say partition, we forget that something else happened, and that is the Indian independence, and in fact, all of South Asia becoming independent from British colonial rule. It's also eight years or so after a lot of legal changes. So the new constitution has been brought in. There is a new divorce act for Hindu families that has been brought in. So it's a lot of time of change and let's say modernization if you want to call it that with with many caveats Mm. but it's it's sort of up there as a decade where lots of things are changing and very very fast and this particular case brings together all the fault lines that exist in India in terms of class caste creed post-coloniality you know, how we look at Britain and, you know, its legacies, but also where we're trying to go. And it's really kind of a a case that involves in different ways, some of the great and the good at that moment, but also the great and the good who come out of that. So some of the people who are involved with the case include specifically one of the people on the prosecution team then becomes one of the sort of legal legends in India. Right. So it's a really interesting case with sort of huge legal and social and media ramifications. And so Nanavati was a commander at this time with the Indian Navy. In his position, how does he fit into this world? K.M. Nanavati is a naval commander. He's a senior commander. He's a Zoroastrian by faith, which is a very small community and very tight-knit community in India. It's also historically a community with quite a lot of political influence and economic power. And 
he is very closely involved with the community and it's a very small community globally. It's possibly one of the tiniest um, religious minorities. So he is an officer, he's very dashing, he's very good looking and he's away on his ship quite a lot. Now he's been married for about 10 years to a woman he meets in Portsmouth while he's in training. So he's married to an English woman by the name of Sylvia and they have three children. And, you know, when they meet in Britain, it's this great love affair and there are pictures of them kind of at major nightclubs and tuxedos and glorious outfits. Mm. And when she moves back to Bombay, she's seen as this great, perfect wife. She's assimilated. She teaches their kids Zoroastrian faith and prayer and rituals. She's loved by the family. And while they're away, she somehow falls in love with a friend of theirs a man by the name of Prem Mahuja, who's from a different community, but he's also quite posh. And he's seen, at least in the trial, it comes through as he's a bit of a player. Right. So, you know, he has affairs. And it seems that at some point, when Nanavati comes back, she confesses to him that she's having an affair. She's also not, it's not clear if she says she wants a divorce, but she does say that, you know, she's not sure if he's going to marry her. Okay. Or take the kids. And so they have tried to do all these sort of family things, Nanavati and Sylvia, where, you know, they've taken the dog to the the vet, they've got some food, they've booked tickets to take the kids to the movies. Mm. And after this conversation, Nanavati takes the kids and his wife to the movies. He says he needs to do some things, so he doesn't go into the film himself. He drives to the base, he picks up his service revolver, He goes to the lover's house. He barges in. It's quite dramatic. The lover has just come out of the shower and he's wearing just a towel. Wow, okay. And very quickly after the confrontation begins, there are three shots and the lover ends up dead. Nanavati then drives back to the base, surrenders himself to the military authorities in the first instance, and then over to the civil police. And that's when it all explodes, because this is quite an extraordinary, kind of already very dramatic situation. So he confesses to committing the crime then. Do we have any sense of why he's confessed? I mean, surely the cinema escapade kind of hints at the possibility that he's looking for an alibi of some sort, but he confesses to it. Well, he does confess to it. And and in the defence, the idea is very much around a crime of passion. Mm -hmm. That this is an honourable man who is a, you know, he's a brave man. He's a military hero and his honour has been besmirched. And the fact that he does this and and the whole sequence of events is quite quick because he's just arrived. He's done all these things. So it, it does, it takes a few hours, but it's not necessarily a long period of time Mm. and the fact that he confesses and surrenders or sort of hands himself over is what kind of becomes part of this narrative that he is trying to exonerate his honour rather than being this terrible murderer. Mm -hmm. Curiously enough, this is a really interesting detail, his family, so Sylvia's parents-in-law, pick up Sylvia and the children from the cinema and take them home to their house. So Sylvia and the kids throughout the years of the the trial and the the media madness that follows stay with the the parents-in-law. Oh, really? So it's it's quite a strange process of what happens there. So it goes to trial, Mm -hmm. and obviously given his status in society, 
there's a lot of interest in the case. Can you tell me a bit about what happened during the trial, what the prosecution was saying, what the defence was saying and how it unfolded? Well, it's quite a complicated case. So the murder happens in April. He immediately surrenders. It then goes into trial. India at this point still had trial by jury. And the jury's asked to basically come up with a guilty, not guilty verdict. And the idea is very much, you know, jury of your peers, etc., etc. The jury in September of 1959 very quickly decides, um, so six months later, that he's not guilty. During the trial, the defence rested upon the idea that Nanavati had reacted to a grave and sudden provocation, where he'd been driven to defend his and his wife's honour. To bolster this image of an honourable man, he attended the court in full military uniform while distraught letters from Sylvia to Premahuja were read out. In one letter, Sylvia says, Last night when you spoke about your need of marrying, about the various girls you may marry, something inside me snapped. And I knew I could not bear the thought of your loving and being close to someone else. The jury took less than an hour to deliberate, and all bar one juror found Nanavati to be not guilty. The dissenting juror later said, I think he was an honourable murderer, but a murderer all the same. That in itself comes as a bit of a shock, that this jury has decided that he's not guilty. Even though he's confessed? Yes, because it's already gone into this this idea of this honourable man pushed to this point, the crime of passion. Right. At which point it's referred to the Bombay High Court by the judge who decides that this verdict is perverse. Mm-hmm. Six months later, in March 1960, Bombay High Court decides that he is guilty of killing the lover yeah. and sentences Nanavati to life in prison. Now, at this point, within hours, the governor of Bombay at the time steps in and he suspends the life sentence until the Supreme Court of India can decide the defense's right. appeal. Gosh. So there's, you see, there's lots of people getting involved in this. Yeah. In September of 1960, the Supreme Court says, okay, the governor's overreached his power, they uphold the verdict, and he is sent to prison. Meanwhile, there's this major outcry from the press. There's a very important tabloid blitz, which runs this campaign. There are people protesting, you know, even through the trial. It's it's quite fascinating. There was this media frenzy and these beautifully, glamorously dressed women would show up and they would throw lipstick marked hankies and papers and notes to him. Really? So he became a kind of pin-up? Yeah, way. he was a pinup, and he he was he was a very dashing, good-looking man. He was, and he looked very good in his uniform, and he was seen as the honourable man. And this kind of, just a very kind of romanticised idea of what man should do. Goodness. So you know, there's this incredible outpouring of emotion. The tabloid works to construct this idea of him as the righteous man whose wife has been abducted or seduced by this evil man. So that kind of plays into the mythologies of the country, including the Ramayana Mm. and Rama and Sita and so on. So it works really interestingly. But in 1963, he's granted parole and he moves away to one of the hill stations to live in a home, um, one of his own, I think, family's homes. And then in 1964... The Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, who was quite close to him and his family, and Vijayalakshmi Pandit, who was Nehru's sister. 
she was actually the first female president of the United Nations General Assembly. And she had finished her tenure and she'd come back to India and she was then made governor of Bombay. Mm -hmm. And there is a kind of a big political maneuvering that happens where he's pardoned. You know, he's already on parole. He's not in prison anymore, but he's then pardoned completely. And soon after, a few years later, the family moves to Canada and they leave India completely. And, you know, he lives out. I think he dies, I think, 2003. Gosh. Interestingly enough, he moves with his wife and kids. So they move to Canada completely as a family unit. And all reports are how they emerge stronger from this mad murder and court case. Is there any sense about how, I mean, I'm, I'm really curious how his wife felt about this. I mean, the idea of your husband murdering somebody that you'd had an affair with and then staying with your husband, it's, I mean, it's, it's really hard to fathom as an outsider. Do we have any sense of what was going on here? Well, she was, she was, it's, her role is really fascinating. There is one book by a journalist who used quite a lot of sources, but both Nanavati and his wife, Sylvia, refused to talk to press after this happened. Okay. So once they moved, they completely cut out all contact and they re- they refused requests repeatedly. And she didn't talk to Bachi Karkaria when she was, I think, from what I remember, when she was doing her book, which is actually really a great, great book. It's called In Hot Blood. But Sylvia was very much present during the trial Mm -hmm. she spoke in defense she read out the letters she had written to her lover about how she was worried that he wasn't he didn't love her enough and he was playing her so she was actively involved with it okay and of course she was staying with none of these parents so it's it's a very strange idea. And, you know, she still lives in, I think she's in her 80s, if unless I've missed a, an obituary. She lives in Canada. She's got her children. They were very active in the Zoroastrian community there. So it just seems that they both came out of it in a strangely stronger marriage. I'm not sure if that's, a, that's something that we're supposed to be able to fathom. Life is interesting and you can't, we're not supposed to understand everything, I I guess. But just going back to the impact of this case, obviously you've mentioned how Nanavate's cause was taken up by the press, but how widespread was this interest? Well, look, the press, not just the tabloid press, but national press was very actively involved. They covered all of it. There was huge interest in it, partly because it was a kind of, who's who parade of a part of society that very few in India had had any kind of insight into. This level of privilege and glamour, which was almost, you know, unthinkable for most Indians at that point, even now, but Mm. I think most people at that point. But I was looking through some some material and I found quite an extensive, it's a page-long report in The New Yorker in 1960. Gosh. So it was it was something that was being covered elsewhere as well because it was so prevalent and it was it was taking up so much of the media air in in India itself. Yeah. Do you think it would be fair to say that the case did mark a kind of a sea change moment in the way people viewed the upper classes in India kind of in the same way that the Lord Lucan or the Profumo affair incidents in the UK would that be a fair comparison to make? I think the impact was quite different. 
Yeah. Those are very valid comparisons. But I think in this particular case, the ramifications were quite different. Mm -hmm. For example, India, after this case, abolished all jury trials, except for civil cases that apply to matrimonial disputes for Zoroastrians. So oh. it, it's completely all criminal trials then had to go through the, the bench rather than a jury. Yeah. So that was a major legal change. I think what happened was, you know, there was something else going on alongside where there was this kind of aspirational level that India was changing, that there were economic changes happening quite quickly. And in some ways, this became a turning point where it's partly um a cautionary tale. It's also something that kind of engages constant prurian interest. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating because Nanavati still walks off at the end of the case as this great honourable man. And the lover comes out as, as sort of, you know, a cautioner of what not to do yeah. and who not to become, even though he's the man with the wealth and the, the glamour and so on. So it's, it's a very, very odd kind of ways in which it impacts. But I think it continues because it fits so many of, of our ideas of virtue and women and mothers and wives and what they do and so on. Mm. So I think it's definitely there. What I find fascinating, is that throughout the 60s you could buy the towel or versions they were known as the prem towels which is what the lover was apparently wearing really yeah so you could buy these towels named after the lover wow and you could buy toy guns named after nanawati so there was merchandise attached oh, to, yeah. to the crime. I mean, th- this wasn't kind of approved merchandise and none of the parties actively involved necessarily benefited from it. But yeah, entrepreneurs then went and ran with making money off it. That's unbelievable. But then I guess it's hard to measure how these things impact people. But obviously everybody wanted to have a piece of the case in their in their own homes to wear as they were coming out of the shower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly worried who would buy a towel named for a murdered lover. But, you yeah. know, one never knows. Maybe women use that as, as a kind of, you know, caution <laughs> a message sent to their fickle lovers. Maybe, yes, a kind of warning. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's been so interesting talking to you about this case. It's one that I didn't know anything about beforehand, but you have mentioned in the past that there are a few films that have focused on this. So I'm definitely going to be checking some of them out. Sunny, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Same. It was great fun talking. The Nanavati case was a defining moment in Indian history. It opened up the world of the upper classes for all to see and exposed the extraordinary scale of their influence. Some of the 20th century's biggest political and legal figures came to be associated with the case, from the prosecution lawyers who, respectively, went on to become the Chief Justice of India and the Minister for Law and Justice, to the Governor of Bombay, Vijaya Pandit, who had also been the first female President of the United Nations Assembly the case became the archetypal trial by media and 60 years on we're still in its thrall thank you for listening this is-